it's kind of the place where time stands still. You can imagine like a few rolling, you know, fields and horse farms up not very far from us. And tall trees and the water. Pretty nice and quiet out here. In the middle, it's like an old concrete building that's three stories high. And it just kind of stood here by this dam and this creek for, you know, a hundred years. And it's kind of iconic here in this area. Nothing's really changed here. So I can, you know, I can still visualize places and things that I did when I was a kid, very young, and still see my grandfather here. Time hasn't changed <laughs> very much out here. So I can still see the past every day, you know, as I walk through the mill. All the different Department of Energy does. The purpose of this is to show you how to use your imagination. A foundation in science, technology, engineering, and math. Developing these technologies for science. Climate change. We're talking about energy. Big dreams. Clean energy is way of the future. This is Direct Current. Welcome to another episode of Direct Current. I'm Allison Lantero. And I'm Matt Dozier. The voice you heard in the intro is Philip Weisenberger, a sixth-generation mill owner from Kentucky. In today's episode, he's just one of several people who will help us take a trip down the river of hydropower history. We'll get back to him in a minute. We're following the course of hydropower's evolution, from the earliest ripples of invention to its turbulent growth, before flowing on downstream to the wave of technologies that could shape its future. So why water? For thousands of years, people have harnessed the power of flowing water. Ancient civilizations from China to Greece figured out that water-driven machines could make strenuous tasks like grinding grain and cutting stone a whole lot easier. That technology turned out to be so useful and so reliable that we've been using it ever since. Mills, like the one owned by the Weisenberger family, are an example of just how timeless and ever-present hydraulic power has been since its discovery. I am Philip Weisenberger, the sixth generation of Weisenbergers to work here at Weisenberger Mill. We've been in business since 1865. We make flour, cornmeal, grits, different types of baking mixes here in Midway, Kentucky. We, we've stuck to the way we do things. I think that might be one of our secrets, why people like our products, because it's done the old-fashioned way. It hasn't changed. When Philip says it hasn't changed, he's being very literal. The mill uses the same machinery that his ancestors used when it was built in 1913. The mill was built with two turbines um, in the water. So the turbine connected to a pulley. The pulley then connected to a line shaft of the mill through a belt, and that would turn the line shaft, which then turned the rest of the mill. The whole mill we have here is all driven by belts and pulleys. Mills, like the original Weisenberger mill, relied on water power to move their machinery. But in the 1880s, people realized that they could use water to do even more. We're talking, of course, about generating electricity. Yeah, did you know that as early as 1880, Grand Rapids, Michigan was illuminating a theater and a storefront with so-called hydroelectric power? And in 1881, Niagara Falls, New York, a flour mill powered the streetlights. And it goes both ways. The Weisenbergers have been using electricity to help keep the power running on their mill when the water wasn't enough. We've been using electricity for a long time. Well, I would say probably since the 1950s or so, in combination with the water. We would have 
electricity and the turbine to turn the mill. You just can't expect to have enough water to turn the mill every day, you know, every day that we needed it to. Later, in the 1980s, they put in a generator to help the mill produce more electricity than it used. But that generator wasn't very efficient. In fact, it used about half as much power as it was producing, which was why a local hydropower developer approached Philip with a proposal. He came to us and asked if we'd be interested in, I guess, being kind of a test site for this permanent magnet generator that would adjust its speed based on the water levels. The way this is set up is the generator then goes out to the grid. It's not directly connected right to the mill. So the electricity that's generated goes into the electricity grid. The utility company monitors how much electricity is uh, generated and how much we use and how much goes back into the grid and then gives us credits on our bill. And it's, it works probably twice as efficient as the other generator. So it's been a big, big difference. If you think of mills like the Weisenbergers as the headwaters where hydropower began as a slow trickle, then the 20th century is where hydroelectric generation swelled into a raging torrent. But before we plunge right in, let's cover some basics. If you want to generate a lot of electricity using water, you need two things. First, a really big turbine. And second, lots of high-pressure water to turn the blades. Historically, the way we've done that is by building dams. When you dam a river to create a reservoir, all that water held up behind the dam has a ton of potential energy. Release some of it and feed it through a turbine, and gravity does the rest. The bigger your turbine, the more water pressure you need to get it spinning. And for more pressure, you need a longer drop from the upper pool, that's the reservoir, to the lower pool, called the tailwater. We should point out that turbines aren't exclusive to hydropower. Nearly every major power source relies on turbines to power the generator that produces the actual electricity. Energy sources like coal, natural gas, and nuclear generate heat, which turns water into steam that moves the blades of a turbine. Some forms of concentrating solar power work the same way. And wind turbines, of course, capture energy from the wind. From one energy source to the next, turbines are pretty much ubiquitous. It's just a matter of what turns the blades. Pretty nifty, right? Let's turn the clock back a little bit and talk about the rich history that hydropower has played in the energy infrastructure of the United States. You know, going back to the 1930s and the 1940s, when the you know there were these large water projects that were dominated by hydropower, like like Hoover Dam, and that really was very important for the electrification of not only cities but all of rural areas as well. That's our energy department colleague Tim Welch. I'm the hydropower program manager in the water power technologies office. As Tim points out. Hydropower really exploded in America around the early to mid-20th century, boosted by massive public works projects like President Roosevelt's New Deal. It played a major role in shaping the growth of the nation, particularly in places like the Pacific Northwest. The construction of large dams really sort of dominated the landscape in the, you know, the 30s and the 40s and the 50s and, and somewhat the 60s. But then after a while, maybe in, you know, in the 70s and 80s, uh, new hydropower projects began to tail off a little bit as all the all the sites for the for the new projects were, were sort of taken up. In addition to the dwindling number of good sites for hydropower dams, there was also the construction cost to consider. 
Dams are massive infrastructure projects. They can drastically change the landscape, disrupting ecosystems and causing problems for the creatures that live there. Let's talk about the most obvious one. I mean, anytime you put any kind of structure in the water that fragments a stream, and by fragmenting, I mean it essentially blocks a stream like a conventional concrete dam, especially a large one like a Hoover Dam would do. Uh, the, the first thing that comes to mind for most people is that it blocks migratory fish. Can you imagine being an upper river tribe in both Washington and in Canada? You know, your subsistence for 10,000 years has been salmon. And little do you know, in 19, you know, starting in the 1930s in the building of Grand Coulee Dam, uh, that one day would come from one year to the next, we have our traditional historic runs of fish. And the next year, there's nothing. And there has been nothing since 1939 or 1940 when the river was blocked. That's Todd Delegan, the Vice President for Business Development at Woosh Innovations, the developers of the Salmon Cannon, which you might have seen on Last Week Tonight with John Oliver. A cannon that fires fish through a tube and over a dam is absolutely incredible. And if you're wondering what it looks like... Certain fish species, like salmon, generally swim upstream in the fall to have their babies. But when a dam is built in their path, it prevents them from completing their journey. The salmon cannon helps fish get up and over these insurmountable obstacles. Allison spoke with Todd about how it works and how the company got its unique name. When we moved into the, this kind of the fisheries arena, we, we had a very descriptive name, Fish Transport Systems. But then we thought about other objects as well, and in one day our CEO really sort of was like, you know, standing next to the tube and listening to things going by, and it really makes, you know, objects make a sort of a whooshing sound as they go by. And that then became our name. So uh, the system is kind of based on a fruit transport system? It was. It really started with trying to identify a better way to get fruit from a tree to a bin more efficiently. But we knew pretty quickly that if we were able to move a piece of fruit like a golden delicious apple, which is very easily brewed, and we could move those things over a fairly long distance without having any damage to it, that we could really think about moving a live fish. The tube is literally hanging from a wire or a pipe, and we're pushing fish with air and a little bit of water for lubrication through that tube. The cool thing is that they actually sort of swim through the tube. I mean, that's why they're making that flopping sound. Uh, they are doing their normal, like, I'm going upstream thing. So is it a colloquialism, or do you actually call the fish transport device the salmon cannon? <laughs> the, salmon, the salmon cannon, somewhat of an internal joke name for a, a lot of years. And we let that name slip in uh, an interview that we gave a couple of years back. And that interview went absolutely viral. And so by the very nature of salmon cannon sort of being out in the, the public environment, you know, that's what folks really sort of know us by. How has the Department of Energy worked with you to get this up and running? Several years ago, we had the opportunity to meet a couple of folks at the, the Department of Energy. And DOE has been supportive of alternate technologies over the years here. And that has been, that has been just terrific. So when we first approached DOE 
with this idea about moving fixed through tube out of water quickly over distance. We weren't immediately sort of thrown out of the room. DOE then sponsored one of the first full physiological tests of fish being transported through a whoosh system and comparing that to traditional methods. And now we, we were fortunate to have sort of our second round of funding through the Small Business Voucher Pilot Program, and that will hopefully fund a new in-river migration study in 2017 to really further the data that has come along. So we have been very, very fortunate um, and thankful for you know, DOE's participation and support really since 2012. And lastly, why do you think this is an important problem to solve? Salmon, they are the Northwest. And anything that we can do to help them uh, repopulate, help their population, it's just such a great goal. We're at something of a turning point for hydropower in America. With the growing focus on clean energy as our nation grapples with climate change, you could argue that hydro is more important than ever before. And yet... Not much has changed for the industry in several decades. While renewables like wind and solar have expanded rapidly, hydropower has grown much more slowly. The U.S. actually generated less electricity from hydro in 2014 than it did in 2002. Where do we go from here? What we're really looking at is a a whole new and different way of looking at new hydropower projects. And as I say around here, it's not your grandfather's hydro anymore. I mean, the days of of Hoover Dam and Grand Coulee are, are, are over. Those big dams will keep producing power. We just aren't building new ones. The future, Tim says, is all about thinking big by thinking small. The Energy Department recently released its first ever hydropower vision report, which looks at all the ways that hydropower could change in the coming decades. The report found big potential in lower impact hydro projects, like adding generation equipment to more of the nation's thousands of existing dams. So just focusing on non-power dams, there are about 80,000 of these dams in the United States, and only about 2,000 of them currently have hydropower. So there's a lot of interest in that area. In fact, our own DOE's own hydropower vision predicts about 11 gigawatts of new hydropower development at non-power dams by the year 2050. The report also predicted that advances in technology would lead to more small hydropower projects in some pretty surprising places. Which brings us to the next part of our journey. Let's continue on down the river, beyond the rushing streams and massive dams, to a place where the train flattens out and the water moves steadily, but slowly. You're listening to the sound of water flowing through an irrigation canal in central Oregon. It's a pretty ordinary canal, to be honest. There are more than 700 miles of canals like it in this part of the state delivering water to thousands of acres of rich farmland in the Deschutes River Basin. And it just happens to be the site of one of the most exciting developments in hydropower in decades. There's a downhill slope at this particular spot in the canal, and the water rushes down through a narrow channel before resuming its leisurely course. It's just a slight drop, really, about 12 feet, hardly a raging torrent by hydropower standards. But as one company has set out to prove, that's all you need. Natal Energy, co-founded by siblings Gia and Abe Schneider with their father in 2005, has developed a technology that could completely change our perception of where hydropower is possible. 
That irrigation canal in Oregon is the site of one of their first projects, in fact. It's a 250-kilowatt installation that provides power to an Apple data center, and it makes a compelling case for small-scale hydro without massive dams or environmental impact. And this is just the beginning. The technology, so the hydro engine, which Natel has developed and then commercialized uh, with actually some support from the DOE, was originally invented by my father back in the first energy crisis. That was late 70s, early 80s. So my brother and I basically grew up with this technology. That's Gia Schneider. She's the CEO of Natel Energy. Gia said her father, Daniel Schneider, who was, among other things, a doctor, a sailor, a pilot, and a farmer, worked for years on his design for a revolutionary machine that could cheaply and efficiently capture hydropower from slow-moving water. For Gia and her brother Abe, that meant a childhood steeped in scientific curiosity, big ideas, and lots and lots of spare parts. Oh yeah, there were, there were hydrogen parts everywhere. We had a shop. Oh, uh, attached to the garage and that, and there was a bunch of stuff in there. Um, yeah, there was a lot of tinkering. Their father called his invention the hydro engine, and it worked very differently from your standard hydropower turbine. At a simplistic level, every turbine on Earth up to this point has used what is effectively a shaft with metal blades of some form attached to that shaft, which then rotate, drive a generator, and produce power. Abe Schneider is the company's chief technology officer. Abe said that instead of the propeller-like shape of a conventional turbine, his father's design looks a lot more like a conveyor belt made out of flat, slightly curved blades, almost like a high-tech Venetian blind. So picture this. Instead of spinning around like a pinwheel, the hydro engine's blades travel in a straight line along one side of the conveyor belt. When they reach the end, they turn around and come right back in the opposite direction on the other side. Water flows through the blades, continuously spinning the belt around to run the generator. It seems so simple and also completely genius. Conventional hydro is kind of like jumping off of the roof of a building to get to the ground floor. So you take out all of that energy in one step. We looked at that and said, well, what if we could walk down the stairs where instead of taking one big step, we take many smaller steps. And in hydro, that step is called head, or in the, and specifically going to smaller steps is called low head. Uh, and for to put some numbers around that, if you know conventional hydro applications are hundreds of feet of head, for us, we're looking at stuff that's as low as five feet, and our top end is about 60 feet. To accommodate more water flow for the hydro engine, all you need to do is make the conveyor belt longer, which is way cheaper and requires a lot less digging than building a conventional dam. The original hydro engine never took off, but Daniel Schneider didn't give up on the idea. And over the years, Abe said, manufacturing technology began to catch up with his dad's forward-thinking design. He started with a very good idea, and I think the biggest difference between that era and today, on the materials side, we were able to design with carbon fiber. When my dad had been working on this idea, he had to design the conveyor belt basically out of steel chain. And um, you can imagine how heavy and clunky and prone to wear this would be. Now, there are off-the-shelf belt components that are as strong as the steel chain that they could replace but weigh five times less. 
and have no moving parts. Armed with modern materials and computer modeling tools, GNABE teamed up with their father in 2005 to update the hydro engine design. They secured a patent, and in 2009, the trio decided to go all in on the technology. Since then, the company has installed projects in Arizona, Oregon, and Maine. They've also rolled out a new version of the hydro engine that doesn't need to be fully submerged in water, making it even easier to fit in tight spaces like, say, an old mill. Daniel Schneider passed away in 2011. But before he died, he got to see Natel's first pilot project come online. And his passion for the work continued even as his health declined. That was a tiny project with an irrigation district in Arizona. Um, that was reconnected in early 2010. Uh, he basically built that plant almost single-handedly. He was literally working on this up until the day before he passed. I think his driving characteristic was that he was very curious about the world to the point where I remember as a, as a child being frustrated with it. We couldn't actually go and just have a simple vacation. We always had to be doing something productive and asking questions. That curiosity and love for the natural world had a strong influence on the company's approach to hydropower. We grew up on a farm and spent our summers going to the same watershed over and over again, year after year, in the headwaters of the Rio Grande, you know, in the mountains in Colorado, up in an alpine area, lots of aspen and pine, freestone streams. And we would visit these streams uh, every year for years and, uh, and go fly fishing and hiking. Those hours spent in the wilderness also supplied the inspiration for a hydropower technology that not only minimizes its environmental impact, but could even have a positive effect on river and stream ecosystems. The natural example that we look to is in the way that beavers integrate very naturally with with the ecosystem. Beavers are a keystone species that actually anchor ecosystems and allow for healthier ecosystems to thrive, um, and yet they're creating dams. All that said, Natel still faces an upstream battle when it comes to breaking into the mainstream hydropower market. Energy is a pretty conservative industry. You know, people are looking for plants that are going to last for 20 to 30 years. And as a startup, like that's the, that's the big challenge for any new generation technology is how do I show 